continuing in, in Romans. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. I've entitled this sermon Jehovah Jireh, which means in Hebrew, the Lord will provide, the Lord will see to it. So before we get started, I'm just going to give a quick recap of last message. So last chapter, we ended at the end of chapter 3, and it's very important to look at the end of the chapter before chapter we're going to get into because, and this is important for when you're reading your Bible at home, originally, you know, there were no chapter, there were no verse divisions in the Bible. And sometimes we can assume that a new verse or a new chapter means a new thought, but that's not always the case. Um, In fact, um, chapter verse divisions were not added until 1551 by Robert Stephanus. And uh, the, the story was that he he added these things on a horseback journey between two cities. And, uh, and obviously that meant that he you know, probably stopped in and in every night and, and, and he would be working on these chapter-verse divisions during that period of time. But because of some of the odd verse breaks that we see in the Bible, some people started saying that he was literally making these verse divisions while on horseback. And his pen would be jolting everywhere. And so sometimes you see just some weird verses that split up sentences. Um, So anyway, the point is, always look to the context of the surrounding verses when you are reading your Bibles. So, last chapter. Paul said that we are no longer justified by a law of works. He said that would never work, right? But he said we're justified by a law of faith in the finished work of Jesus. Because there's nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to earn a righteous standing before God. And he says that this faith justifies both the Jew and the Gentile, both the religious and the non-religious alike, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. But what Paul does now is he hears a potential objection from his readers. And if you haven't noticed, this is what Paul does throughout the whole letter of Romans. He, he goes through and he's listing out his argument for why, why we are all broken, why the gospel is the only thing that can save us. And along the way, as he's proving his points, he, 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 he proactively assumes that we're going to have these objections to what he's saying. And so he brings them up and then he answers them and tells us why we're wrong. Okay? In fact, the logic that Paul does, shows here is so profound that Dr. Jack Arnold said that law schools have been known to require their students to memorize Romans because of its masterful logic. Never has there been a book like Romans. It is profound in doctrine, but extremely practical. All right, it's like, it's like Paul is going to court, arguing the case for why the gospel is what we all need. So the objection that Paul raises in chapter 4 is this. What was the point of God's awesome covenant with Abraham and the promise of many offspring signified by circumcision, if all that stuff is just overridden by Jesus? What was the point of God's covenant with Israel at all? And that's the question that Paul is going to tackle in this text. But before we get into it, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that it meets us right where we're at. Lord, that we don't need to have any kind of understanding necessarily. We don't need to know all the theological ins and outs, Lord, to come to you. We can just come to you with all of our brokenness, with all of our baggage, God, and you love us. And and you walk along the way with us, God. And so I pray that you would walk along this path um, in this chapter, in this chapter of our lives, God, and show us how we could draw closer to you and grow more richly in love with you and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so three parts today, 
Three points. First one is defining faith. Second one is faltering faith. And third is surrendering faith. So part one, defining faith. And what I mean this is just a definition that Paul is going to give us of a saving faith in Christ. So we're going to start in Romans 4, verse 1. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Right, this is his objection. What's up with Abraham? What does this mean? What does the Old Testament mean now to us? For if Abraham, verse 2, was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right, now what we need to first understand is that Paul grew up Jewish and that he knew the Old Testament back to front. So this is a very personal question for him. What does the history of all his people mean now that Jesus the Messiah has finally come? Right, and Paul knows that the Old Testament texts talked wildly about Jesus' coming. Right, that the Messiah was going to save all people of all ethnicities, ultimately. And so all the Jews are familiar with this. They were familiar that Jesus was going to come and save them from their sins. But Paul is going to show that the Jewish law was given by God but for a time. Because when the Messiah comes, it's going to be fulfilled. And the old packaging of the law is going to pass away. But the essence of the law remains in Jesus. So, so this is what Paul is talking about. That the faith, the faith that we now have in Jesus Christ, is actually a continuation of the faith that the Old Testament prophets and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob had all along in God. Because he was the one that was going to provide for them. And Paul starts off with Abraham and he asks, Was Abraham justified, made righteous in God's sight, by something he did? Was he somehow different from other people of his time? I'm going to read those verses again real quick. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And he's quoting Genesis 15 here. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So what Paul is saying here is that if Abraham had actually done something so awesome that it grabbed God's attention, and he became righteous before God because he earned that status, then he would actually have something to brag about. Abraham, if he actually did something awesome, could go to us and he could say, you know, I don't know why you Christians are following God and stuff. He's like, just be awesome like me. Just do X, Y, and Z, and you're going to earn God's righteousness. And, and he would be rightfully, he would be, he would be righteously attributed this fame because he actually did something awesome. But that's not the case. And so we look again at verse 3 and we see what Abraham did. It said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what this shows us is that all Abraham did was merely believe God. And by believing God, he was now looked upon as righteous by God. We're going to look at the two words highlighted on the screen today to really dig deep into the definition of what saving faith is. Believed and counted. Okay, believed. If you take a look at the first sentence, it does not say that he believed in God. It says he believed God, and there's a big difference. Okay, believing in something means just that we acknowledge its existence. Okay, believing someone means we trust them or we put our confidence in them. We have vested interest in them. And what we place our confidence and trust in, that's evident from our actions. For example, Kayla's not here, okay? So I can tell this. Um, no, I'm kidding. She'd be fine with it anyway. But you might see 
Kayla go shopping at Aldi, okay? And, and, but what you'll also see is she's gonna skip the produce section of Aldi, and she's going to go across the street to Walmart to get our produce. And what we can see from her actions reveals where she placed her trust and confidence in. And we, by and large, do not place our confidence and trust in the produce section at Aldi for good reason. But we do trust Walmart. Maybe another more relatable analogy might be the COVID vaccine. So some of us uh, trust the COVID vaccine. We know that it's been developed by professionals. We know it's been developed in the same way that the flu vaccines and other vaccines have been developed. And so we place our trust that this is going to be the safest option for us, and we demonstrate that trust by taking it. But some of us are, are a little skeptical about possible repercussions, possible side effects that have not yet been researched. And so we demonstrate that untrust by, by refusing to take it. And so some of us, some of us actually fall into this camp with God, right? We believe in him. We believe that he exists. We believe that the Bible's true, but we don't actually trust him with our lives. And that's shown by our actions, by the way that we don't actually commit our lives practically to him. We like the idea that God is good. We, we love the idea that there's a heaven and an afterlife. I mean, we, we bubble in that little Christian bubble under religion on the census, and we might go to church and we might pray, but our lives are not necessarily living proof that we are trusting our entire beings to this God, right? If we really trusted God, then, then someone should be able to come by and see our lives and be like, man, if Christianity is a sham, this guy's an idiot because he's putting all of his stock in what God says. Amen. Trusting Jesus really looks like, as Pastor J.D. puts it, putting, putting your life as a blank check before Jesus. And saying, Lord, you fill it in. You have what you want because ultimately I am bought by you. And we're going to get more into these questions of what it looks like to surrender to God. Um, so keep these things in the back of your mind. And we're going to return to the connection of faith and actions in a moment. But let's move on to our next word in these verses, counted. All right, counted. This is the Greek word logizomai, and it means to impute or metaphorically to pass to one's account. How many of y'all know what Venmo is? Show of hands. Does anyone know what Venmo, use Venmo? So, so Venmo is, um, is an app, for those of you that don't know, that allows you to transfer money from one person's account to another person's account. And, 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 the, and the only thing, the only caveat you have to do is that you have to put a reason. You have to give an explanation for why you're transferring funds from one person's account to another. It could be this month's rent. It could be pizza from last night. It doesn't care what you put. You just have to put a reason. And so what Paul is essentially saying that happened here with Abraham is that he did not earn righteousness by his actions. He received it as a gift, as a transfer, because he trusted God to provide for him what he could not provide for himself. It was as if God saw Abraham's trust and therefore transferred God's righteousness into Abraham's account. And the reason he put was trusting faith. All right? So let's read the next verses and see the number of times Paul uses this word counted. All right, verse 5. He says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Notice now that Paul is showing that David, 
and the other prophets of the Old Testament all displayed this saving faith. By trusting in the promises of God, what he said, that they could achieve forgiveness and righteousness if they would come before him and trust him for these things. Trust him for things they could not provide for themselves. And, and they demonstrated this through the sacrificial institution of bringing the animals to the altar every year. Right? right? David would bring the animal to the altar and he would sacrifice it for his sins. And he trusted, though he could not verify it, that God brought him forgiveness through these things. And they trusted that God would bring a substitute for them. And so this is how the people of the Old Testament demonstrated faith in the God and Savior Jesus Christ that we now know. We also see that Abraham believed so deeply in God's promise that he obeyed God to bring his son as a sacrifice on the altar. His, the son whom he loved, Isaac, that was promised to him to be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And as he's bringing his son to the altar, behold, God shows a ram in the thicket. And God says, don't sacrifice Isaac. This is the substitute that I have provided so that you will not perish. You, you and your son will not perish. And in the same way, Jesus is that ram in the thicket, right? That we cannot save ourselves, that we were doomed to die. But, but at the last second, God said, no, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. And so when we trust in Jesus, what we're actually doing is trusting God to provide for our needs that we cannot provide for ourselves. And this is how all of the saints, all of the former saints in the Old Testament understood this. Now, ultimately, ultimately, Jesus didn't necessarily take this all away. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of all of this Old Testament laws and rules and sacrificial systems. So Paul's answer to the question was, what was the point of the Old Testament and the covenant he made with Israel? Jesus did not abolish it. He says, Jesus fulfilled it. He revealed finally the plan of salvation that God had for men from a long time ago. And that's why Paul says, finally the mystery of the gospel is revealed. We can talk about it in plain words and, and, and plain analogies, not, not such clothes and secluded symbolism like the Old Testament described it in. So Christianity, Paul says, is not this new movement. It's not a new religion that I came up with, Paul says, but it's the continuation of a relationship that God has been building with his people for centuries and centuries. Paul is showing, right, that our works and the things we do for God were never meant to justify us, and they never could. But it was always God, through all of those things, finally bringing to fulfillment the sacrifice in Jesus. Verse 9, we're going to move on to. Paul then says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul is saying that God counted Abraham as righteous for his trust in him before he did anything at all. Circumcision 
was for the Jews an outward symbol of their inward devotion to God. It's like a wedding ring. Okay, if I take my wedding ring off, my marriage status does not change. If I put it back on, it still does not change. Okay, rather it's an outward symbol of a covenant that I'm a part of. In the same way, circumcision was an outward symbol of a covenant that Abraham had entered with God. This was not a way for him to earn God's grace. It was a symbol that he was already justified by God's grace because he believed God for it. In the same way, good works do not define our relationship with God. However, if I have true saving faith and trust in Jesus, then I'm going to start acting like him because he's changing my heart. I'm going to start talking like him because he's on my lips all the time. And I'm going to start giving like him because I'm a recipient of his great generosity. And I'm going to start loving like him because there is nowhere else that I can find the kind of extravagant love that Jesus has lavished on me. So hear me loud and clear. If these changes in your life, in your heart, are not present, then maybe you should take a look at who you're really placing your trust and your faith in. Because it's probably not Jesus. Now, evidently, some early Christians twisted Paul's teaching of, of, of uh, grace alone through faith. All right? and, and they twisted it to read something like, oh, well, I guess I don't have to do anything to be saved, right? because I just have to have faith. I can just believe, you know, that God loves me, and, and that's awesome. And why should I help my neighbor? Why should I go out of my way to do these things? Why should I love sacrificially when it doesn't matter to me? I'm already saved by faith. Okay? And so in response to such, such distortions, James will pick up on this in his letter. And he's going to quote the same verse we see Paul quoting about in Abraham. All right, so James chapter 2, verses 14, we're going to start in. This is what he says. What good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Right? That's what we talked about, the difference between believing in God and believing God. The demons believe in God's existence, but we're not any better than them if we do that. Verse 20, James goes on. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works. And not by faith alone. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. Now, this is an incredibly important passage for us, but it can also be easily misunderstood because it seems to be in direct contradiction with what Paul was saying about Abraham before, right? And in fact, some uh, Bible scholars and theologians of the medieval times couldn't understand this contradiction. Martin Luther, the reformer, he detested this letter that James wrote. He openly called it an epistle of straw, meaning it's just worthless. And at the time, the Catholic Church was misusing it to teach salvation by works. 
And so it's understandable that he didn't like it. But if we take an honest look at what both Paul and James are saying, we're going to see that their two arguments are two sides of the same coin. And they both use Abraham as their example. So let's dive in. Paul says that Abraham is an example of salvation by faith alone. And as he was counted as righteous before having done anything to earn it, aside from trusting God's promise. And James says that Abraham is an example of salvation by faith and works because he offered his son Isaac on the altar as an act of obedience, thus demonstrating his faith. So who is right? Both, right? Because they are saying complementary ideas that boil down to the same thing. All right, as Pastor J.D. says, salvation is by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. All right, salvation is by faith alone, We're saved the moment we trust in God's promise. But that faith that we have is never going to be alone because it's accompanied by a transformation in our actions. C.H. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, regeneration is making the old thing new. It is infusing a new nature into a person. The new birth is making the person a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul said. But can a new creature have no repentance, no good works, No private prayer, no charity or holiness of any kind. The new birth would be a thing to be ridiculed if it did not really produce a hatred of sin and a love of holiness. So, James's point is this. It is true that faith alone saves, but if this faith does not transform you and cause you to obey God and to love others, then you do not have saving faith. Let's continue and follow what Paul continues to expound about the faith of Abraham. Verse 13, Paul goes on to say, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And these three verses are kind of saying the same thing we talked about last message, that we can't be justified by the law, right? By our obedience to God. Because Paul says that's futile and foolish because none of us are truly good. None of us are truly obedient or perfect, right? And that's that's the foundational bed of the gospel that that Paul's been expounding for the last three chapters, right? We We have to come to God with this sense of the fact that we have tried all of the things to be good and we just can't do it. And and unless we have come to admit that, then the rest of what Paul says is not going to mean anything to us. Okay? But we talked about that, but we're going to move on now to, to verse 16. So Paul continues. That is why, he says, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul explains here that since salvation has always been through faith, it is available to all people. It wasn't just for Abraham and his family, but rather it was for anyone who would believe the promise that God would save them, that God would provide something for which they could not provide for themselves. We're going to move on to part two, okay, faltering faith. So we defined faith, and now we're going to see what faltering faith looks like, especially in Abraham's life. 
We're going to continue on. Paul says in verse 18, In hope, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that is why this faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, hold on a second. If any of y'all have read the story of Abraham, you know that he was not really a model person who never wavered in his faith, right? There was definitely a good amount of unbelief in Abraham's heart. So this seems quite odd that Paul would say he had no unbelief that made him waver, right? That he never weakened in his faith. Paul, are you, do you know the right Abraham story? Do you, right? And we know Paul knew it, all right? He was a, he was a student of one of the most, most sought after religious Pharisees of the time. Paul knows his Old Testament. This is not a clerical error, okay? Let's go through Abraham's biography. Quick highlights, Spark Notes version, Okay. Abraham, at the age of 75, God calls him to leave everything he's ever known and follow him. Because he is going to make of Abraham a great nation, and Abraham believes and does that. All right? Then around age 85, 10 years later, we pick up in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham expresses concern to God. He's like, God, I know you said you're going to make me a great nation, but I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm 85 and I'm still childless. So unless you plan to do something, I don't know how it's going to happen. And God promises him there and then explicitly. He says, no, I'm going to give you a son. Not a foster son, not a stepson, not a spiritual son in the faith. I'm going to give you a biological son through your wife. And here we come across the famous verse. And he believed and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. All right. And then Abraham asks God for a confirmation of his promise. So in what seems strange to us, God says, okay, I'm going to confirm that I am devoted to you. And uh, God asks Abraham to go catch a bunch of animals, to cut them in half, and lay them side by side in in a walkway so that one could walk through them. And this seems really strange to us, but... This was actually in a, uh, an ancient way of making a covenant, of making a promise of signing a contract. And so what the two people that were signing a contract would do is they would walk in between the two halves of the dead animals. And as if to say, if either of us break this promise, then our blood will be spilled like these animals. All right? it, was a, it was a way of putting your life behind what you were saying. And what's really odd, and we'll get back to it in a minute, is that God waits for Abraham to fall asleep. And then God walks through this covenant all by himself without Abraham. This part is a little confusing. And the scriptures don't really explain why. But we're going to get back to it later. And then we see in the next chapters of Abraham's um, journey, he seems to falter in his trust of God. He does not believe God is going to provide for him. And so we see in the next chapter, probably just a few months later, because it says um, that this happened when he was 86 and God promised him at 85. Right? We see his wife come to him and say, hey, you know, I think God's being a little slow. You know, I think maybe God wants us to take this into our own hands. And so she says, Abraham, I've got this slave girl. You know, she's a great servant. She's young. She's fertile. Why don't you just take her as another wife and have a son through that? And therefore, God's promise is going to be fulfilled. And Abraham 
seemingly has no issues with this, which raises super big alarm bells, or should anyway, right? The fact that he is not trusting in God to do this. He's trusting in himself. He's taking the burden on himself to do what he thinks he has to do. Then after that, God comes to remind Abraham again that he's going to give him a promised son. And what does Abraham do this time? Abraham laughs and says, God, we're too old. Why don't you just use Ishmael, the son I illegitimately had already? Just use what I've got. You know, there's no way you can do this. And God says, no, no, Abraham, I I already told you, I'm giving you a biological son. And so often we think, we think that God is in need of the solution that we can conceive on our own. We trust in our own capabilities to get to God. And unless we're careful, we begin to worship ourselves or the blessings that God's given us because we think that they are providing for us instead of God. We think that our job is what's giving us our income, but it's not. It's God through that, right? And we think that our family is what gives us love and security, but it's actually God infusing that love through that that is providing that for us. And so when we mistake all these blessings God's given us for providers, we end up worshiping them instead of God. And that's what Abraham did. I often feel like this with every sermon that I write. I, I, I write it and I begin, I'm like, God, you know, I need you to do this. I need you to show up and I need you to really inspire my words, help them to be congruent with scripture in every way that people's hearts might be opened, right? And then somewhere along the way, inevitably multiple times during the sermon writing, I'm like, oh man, you know, this is a really good point. I'm patting myself on the back like man that's so cool you know like that's a good quote that's gonna look really good you know people are gonna think I'm a really awesome pastor because I I remembered that you know and so all these things start to it starts to bubble and and my ability and the things that God has given me to use as a gifting for him become the source that I believe is my provision and so I start to put all my weight and trust in that no longer in God and so inevitably uh, whether the morning before or or many times during the sermon writing, I just have to lay all my notes on the ground as if on the altar and be like, God, this means nothing. My wit, my humor, my intelligence don't mean a dang thing unless, unless you show up and unless you make this happen. Yes. Amen. And, and, and that happens to all of us in, in, in all different forms and all different ways. And so what is clear is that all of us struggle with our faith. You, me, Abraham, right? We we waver, we waver. So why does Paul say that Abraham never wavered? I'm going to quote J.D. Greer one more time on this. He says, it is because Paul understood that faith is not never falling, but always looking to Jesus after you do. The faith itself might be feeble, but its object is secure. We will see that even after all of Abraham's wavering this way and that way and causing, causing terrible discord in his home, he surrenders himself eventually, walking up that mountain with his only son, the son that he had tried so hard to manufacture on his own. And finally, we can see that he's letting it all go because he's walking this son up to sacrifice it to God. Now, just as a caveat before we move on, we all know child sacrifice is wrong, right? And, and the Old Testament says time and again, God says through prophets Jeremiah and the like, I don't want you sacrificing people or your children at all. But in this moment, God is using this as a test for Abraham. He never intended Isaac to get hurt in it. Okay, so moving on. All right, 
This could easily turn into a message on how wonderful Abraham's obedience was. Okay? It could easily, we could easily say that we should just be an Abraham in our own lives. But that's not what Paul's getting at. Right? We already talked about how Abraham was wavering in his faith, was shaking, and struggled with doubt. Okay? Paul wants us to know that Abraham did grow in faith, but not by anything that he did. It was ultimately in who he found trust in. It was who he placed his faith in. And so in that way, be like an Abraham. But most importantly, the message of Abraham is look to Jesus. Look to God, the one who can provide when we cannot provide for ourselves. It was his object of faith that gave him courage, not his soundness of character. Part three, surrendering faith. Okay, surrendering faith. So we already talked about, right, Abraham now is finally walking up this mountain with his child of promise. Right, this is what God has promised him for probably 20 years now and finally gave him at the age of like 90, I think it was, or 100. Right, he's, he's given him this son that is everything to him. And in case, in case the writer of Genesis thinks that we don't think that Isaac matters that much to Abraham, we, we see God specifically say, Abraham, bring Isaac, the son whom you love, and carry him up and sacrifice him. Let me ask you this. What for you is your child of promise? What is the thing that you feel like is your source of provision? And I'm not saying theologically. We all know the right answer, right? We all know God is a source of our provision. But what practically for you in your heart is your source of provision? Is it, is it your successful career? Is it, is it being able to know that, you know, hey, people look at me really great here. Uh, my salary, my salary means everything to me. And now that I have that, I can feel secure and I can feel provided for. Maybe it's career happiness. Maybe it's like, you know, once I get a job where everybody respects me and appreciates my talent, I don't care what the hours are. I don't care how much I get paid. But once I get that, then I'll be provided for. Then I'll be secure. Maybe it's success at ministry. How, how many people came to my Bible study, right? How many people can come to my church? How many people can I reach out to with the gospel? Then I'll feel provided for once I reach that goal. Or maybe for some of us, it's our family, right? Man, if, if I'm just a good enough parent, if the other parents see that I'm a good enough parent and I have a claim with them, then man, that's all I could ask for and I'm going to be secure. I'm going to be provided for. But the problem with any of these blessings being treated as our providers is that we end up building our own kingdom around them instead of partnering with the true provider to build his kingdom. And the truth is, you will never have true peace or security until you have faith in the one true provider for your soul. Because everything fluctuates and falls away, but he never will. He never will. Now, God is not necessarily calling us to give up all the good things that we love that he's given us. But he's always calling us to hold them with open palms before him. Trusting that he is our provision, not these earthly blessings that he's given us. And they may be fulfilling those, those forms of provision that he's promised us, but they themselves are not something to be worshipped. They themselves are just vehicles for his grace, but his grace is what we need to trust in, not those things. 
you want me to show you when Abraham was most at peace? Ironically, it was when he was ascending the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. Right? Or we see this in Genesis 22, verse 7, when, he, when he's having a conversation with Isaac as they're walking up. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And Abraham said to him, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is the provision that we need to make this sacrifice? Right? Isaac thought they were going up to sacrifice a lamb to the Lord. How would Abraham have answered this when he had his misplaced faith before? He might have said, don't worry, Isaac, I'm going to bring a sacrifice. I've got another lamb right here just in case God doesn't provide. For my son, I'm not going to let you die. You're the only thing that can provide God's promise for me. Or he might have said, hey, I brought Ishmael. You know, we're going to use him as a sacrifice because I need to be secure in the fact that you are the child of promise for me. But those would have all been indications that Abraham was not placing his faith in God to provide, but rather in himself. But now see how Abraham answers. He says, son, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Then the two of them walked on together. Right? God himself will provide. Right? This is what he's saying. He's discovered finally about God's character. God himself will provide. It won't be through me. It won't be through anything good I can do. It won't be through my intelligence. It won't be through my wife's intelligence. We're leaving it to God because he's the only one that can provide for my family in this way. And after all is said and done, and God provides the substitute for Isaac, right? the ram in the thicket, Abraham calls God by a new name. He calls him Jehovah Jireh. Meaning God will provide or literally God will see to it. God will see to it. Now you say, what could have generated such trust in Abraham? Such trust in God, sorry, for Abraham to experience this radical obedience, this radical courage. Because just a moment ago we thought, we saw him trying every single route to do it himself. So what changed? It's my thinking that what finally sunk in for Abraham is that odd ritual we talked about in Genesis chapter 15. You guys remember what happened? They cut the animals in half. They aligned them. Imagine they're, they're on either side of these chairs so that you can just walk right through the middle of them. And the, and, and the blood kind of pours into the middle, not to be graphic, but, but this is what they used to do. They literally called it cutting a covenant. And literally cut. Sometimes it just says, we cut in Hebrew, meaning they just they, they made a promise. They made a contract, right? But that's what it means. That's how they did it. So they cut all the animals in half. And both parties were supposed to walk through to signify they were willing to die if they did not provide as they promised. And Abraham waits for a while, it looks like. He's shooing the birds away that are trying to eat the dead carcasses. And he's waiting for God to show up to ratify this contract with him. And finally, the sun goes down and Abraham falls asleep. But then something awesome happens. All right, God, in the form of a fire and a pot of smoke, Descends and he starts walking through the animals on his own. And Abraham probably wakes up, right? He's probably a little bit groggy. He's rubbing his eyes and he's like, what is that? And you have to understand, you see, in some cultures, the, the kings that would, that would take over other territories, that they would, they would force only their slaves to walk through alone, saying, this promise is, is unilateral, dependent upon you only. I'm the king, I don't have to do it, right? And remember, God was Israel's king. God was Abraham's king.
But yet as king, he, he lets Abraham go to sleep. And he walks through alone. God was signing the contract alone. It was dependent upon God alone. God was saying, if I fail to provide for you, if I fail to hold my promises, if I fail to provide for your offspring, then my blood shall be spilt like these animals. And so as Abraham is walking up these mount, this mountain, right, he can be confident that God will provide in the, in the same way. Because this God, he knows, this God would rather bleed out and die than not provide for his children. So I can trust him. I imagine as Abraham's walking up, you know, he's finally got this peace, almost this excitement. He doesn't know how God's going to provide, but he knows that he will. I imagine he's humming something to himself about God's character. In contemporary times, it might be, you know, this worship song, right? Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me. You see, Paul wants his reader to see that the Christian faith, his faith in Jesus, the God who died for us, is not a new faith, but it was a seed of faith that Abraham had, right? It was a fulfillment of the age-old Jewish faith that this God was willing to lay down his own life to make sure that his children would be seen as righteous, would be provided for by his blood. Because unbeknownst to Abraham, centuries later, right, God would fulfill the shadow of what he showed to Abraham that night because he would incarnate the flesh as Jesus and ultimately die in our place. He would shed his innocent blood. He would be numbered among the transgressors. By his wounds, we would be healed and provided for, and his chastisement would bring us peace as it brought Abraham. And in closing, Paul writes this. Verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so just as Abraham could look back to the promise of God who was willing to die rather than not provide, we, we as Christians can now look to the gospel, right? That beautiful painful, torturous cross on Calvary to see that not only was he willing to die for us, but he did die for us. And as we look and see what he's done, we can increase our faith in him as Jehovah Jireh, a God who provides, who sees to it. Right? Because God was willing to die to meet our greatest need. Right? Our, our, we, needed, we needed forgiveness. Right? Because our souls were unclean in the sight of God. And we could not come before him. But he saw to it. He saw if it means that I have to bleed out like a criminal naked on a cross, I'm going to do it because I want you back. And by looking, looking to what God has done, growing in the gospel, we can become radically obedient followers of God our Father. So where are you this morning? Let me ask you this. Where has God been reminding you, time and again like he did Abraham, to let go and stop trying to be your own savior and trust him instead. Where or what has he been asking you to surrender? It might be a really good thing, but what has he been asking you? Let go and let me. Put this down and trust me, don't trust that. But you felt it just been too hard. As we close out, I just want, I want you all to just close your eyes and as we go into a time of prayer, just silently open the palms of your hands
to the ceiling as if to signify all the things that you're holding dear, you're surrendering to God. Right? That, 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 that you're thankful for them, but that you trust that, that God can provide even if, even if he's not going to provide for you through these things. Acknowledge him as the provider of all the blessings you have. And even if you had none, he would be enough. God, please forgive us for relying on these other good things instead of you. God, help us to root out these idols in our hearts, Lord, that we, that we would be so quick to trust these things to provide for our souls rather than you who say you love us and you count the hairs on our head and you know when one falls out of our head, Lord, you know us so well, God. Let us trust you. Lord, let us grow more in the gospel. The idea that there's nothing we can do to make you love us more, nothing we've done that makes you love us less, God, and we can come before you. And because you love us so unconditionally, we can trust that you have our good at heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Help us to be even more obedient to you because of this.